0: Welcome to the Brooks McDonald Podcast. This episode was taken from a live recording of our Connected webinar series, and as such, you are unable to participate in any interactive sections. You're only able to gain CPD by registering for the live and on-demand Connected webinar sessions. You can find out more information at www.brooksmcdonald.com forward slash connected.
1: Good morning to everyone and welcome to our Webex this morning. Uh, welcome to our Connected series, which is offered here through Brooks McDonald. And today we will be discussing a very hot topic, the topic of inflation, and what that may mean for both existing investors in global markets, as well as, of course, prospective investors. Uh, we are joined today uh, by Ed Park, who is group CIO for Brooks, for the Brooks McDonald Group based in London, and I am Lindsay Bateman, Head of Business Development for Brooks McDonald on the Offshore International business and based here in the lovely and sunny island of Jersey. Before we get into the meat of today's uh, topic, may I just run through a couple of administrative issues which um, you can look at on screen and see if this might help during the next half an hour. First of all, you have complete control of the panels in front of you. Each of these panels can be moved, expanded, or reduced so that you can tailor the screen to how you may want to interact during the session. To expand or maximize any of these panels to full screen, click on the arrows on the top right-hand corner. At the bottom of your screen is an icon ribbon that gives you access to a number of panels, and I'll quickly run through those. The media player is already showing, and that's where you can see your presenters, myself and Ed Park. Slides allows you to control how and where the presentation panel displays. You can ask questions throughout the session at any time using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. I'll be monitoring this as we go along, and we will have time to answer questions at the end of the session. You can invite a contact to join the webinar by using the share button. Our resource list allows quick links to our quarterly market overview and, and, and uh, inflation leading the conversation, as well as our weekly market commentary. Once the webinar is finished, a very quick short survey will automatically appear and we'll be very grateful if you could respond to that. Even more uh, valuable, I guess, to our audience, Is that you will be able to download our CPD certificate, but you will have to stay attending for at least 40 minutes before you will be able to access that certificate. Finally, if you have any questions and like to have a private conversation with our, our BM team, please book a meeting and we will be able to respond to that post the actual webinar. Finally, if you do want to find out anything else regarding or anything more regarding your presenters today, myself and Ed, You can click on the speaker bio and uh, further information is available there as well good well hopefully that sets the scene and you've all tried out uh, adjusting your your screen to suit yourselves and maximize the advantage and benefit of this particular webex so before we before we get into the key topic of inflation with ed just to briefly introduce uh, brooks mcdonald and uh, I'll just run through a couple of key points for those of you that aren't as well aware of Brooks as, uh, as many of you are. So by way of a quick update, uh, first of all, as a business, we are managing in, in terms of funds under management, not under administration. So these are funds we are actively managing on a day-to-day basis. As at the end of June, we are managing just over 16.5 billion sterling, which is a, a sizable sum in anyone's language. In terms of our total revenue for the last full financial year in the June 2020, our profitability, a total revenue, $108.6 million. Our business was formed back in 1991. So we certainly know uh, new boys on the block and we listed on the London Stock Exchange on the AIM listing back in 2005. In terms of offices, we have 13 offices across the UK which includes one here in Jersey where I am based, of course, and we also have an office across in Guernsey. And we're in the process of opening our office in the Isle of Man, which is a a very exciting development. Good support for local charitable donations through our foundation. And uh, in the full year 2020, we donated over 37,000 pounds as part of our charitable work. And finally, Ed leads a team of some 87 investment fully qualified investment managers. We have a few trainees coming into the mix and a total staff complement of 438. So a little bit about Brooks McDonald, very much a a, a established and and, and key player in the asset management world, fully independent of course, and uh, doing work in the Middle East, South Africa, East Africa, Europe, and of course across the UK, amongst other markets. So hopefully that was a useful update for our delegates today and now we can get into the real point of why everyone's logged in and that is for me to hand over to our group CIO Ed Park who will take us through the issues around inflation and what that means for investors. Ed over to you. Brilliant thank you uh, very much Lindsay and
2: uh, welcome everyone to our latest connected video. So As Lindsay said, the hot topic today is inflation. So we uh, thought we'd start off with just a definition of what inflation is. Of course, we all know what inflation is, but there are kind of two parts to uh, the definition. And one is this kind of general increase in prices, which is what the inflation number is measuring. But there's also the element which is the fall in the purchasing value of money and that's often what investors really care about and particularly in a low rate world such as today that means that many cash investments many sovereign bond um, investments are providing a a, a real negative return i.e after inflation they are actually losing uh, the value of money and inflation effectively acts as a silent headwind to all of our investment gains Equally, inflation is vitally important about working out what, uh, what's working in, in markets and uh, which sectors uh, will lead the way. So inflation is always uh, critical, but it's particularly important at this moment in time, a point that we will go through over the course of this webinar. So what causes inflation? Now, there are three real drivers of them. None of them are particularly bad or good in the same way as inflation isn't particularly bad or good. But the first two here I view as kind of first stage inflation, and the third is a bit of a follow on. So, going through these in a bit more detail demand pull, what is that? Well, that's when effectively, you know, if you kind of go back to uh, economics 101, this is that you've got a bit of stability between demand and supply, and all of a sudden demand uh, picks up. So therefore, prices uh, go up to kind of meet that new level of demand. So this is when you know, you've got a good, strong economic recovery, um, consumer confidence is high, uh, people are feeling good, they want to spend more money, they, they buy more of a certain good or service. And you've got cost push inflation. Now again, uh, whilst this isn 't necessarily good or bad, this is probably uh, you know, a less exciting form of inflation. This is when raw material costs go up or the costs of uh, labor go up, et etc, et etc, and that gets basically pushed on um, to to customers so basically, a product service um, uh, goes up in price because the end price has gone up because of the input uh, costs then finally you 've got this idea of built in Inflation and this effectively is a bit of a feedback loop. So, what you see is all of a sudden, uh, you know, prices are going up, so you go in and you meet your boss and you say, This is you know, a nightmare, I can't afford the same basket as I could last year, I need a pay rise. You get a pay rise, but of course, all that that does effectively is, is, is build in another cost push, a uh, piece of inflation, um, because the, co- uh, the goods and services that you supply um have to go up in price because your weights have gone up. So, it, it effectively. You know, it probably starts off with demand pull or cost push, but to really gain momentum, you need the built in. It, it effectively makes um, inflation a bit of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. And that's why when central banks are trying to keep inflation uh, to their kind of, and generally it's about 2% target globally, when they're trying to do that, they're keen for it not to overshoot for too long, because after a while the feedback mechanism um, starts getting quite important in terms of inflation numbers. Then I thought we'd kind of cover off. Why do we uh, particularly care? And, and this kind of comes back to the comments about falling purchasing power uh, that I mentioned at the start and the returns achievable on fixed income and cash have been very low uh, for some time. And if you take the uh, the purple line uh, here, this is the what you get on a UK government 10 year bond, as we gilt, you can see it's been pretty poor uh, since the financial crisis, but clearly since the pandemic, um, uh, rates have gone even lower, and the returns available at about 75, 80 basis points um, are, are are pretty small. So, if inflation is rising at the same time, so you're not really getting much return on these assets. Most of these sovereign bonds uh, globally, really, will have a negative real, i.e., inflation-adjusted, yield. And we've used this chart on screens uh, many times before to show the relative valuation um, attraction of equities, and this is just about saying look at the nominal, so just the the basic yield of these two asset classes. But if you add in inflation, equity becomes one of the few traditional asset classes to provide a positive real return, which is one of the reasons why we're more positive on equity markets. So how do you calculate inflation? Well, effectively, inflation is just calculated based on a basket of goods, and that basket is updated periodically by the government or by another independent body. In this case, we're looking at the CPIH basket, uh, which is effectively the CPI, um, you know, uh, uh, the consumer price inflation uh, that we know plus housing costs. So it's closer to RPI um, for those that uh, kind of know that that slightly um, older uh, definition of inflation. But this basket here uh, tells us a few things. So on the left hand side, you can see the high level sectors that drive uh, the UK inflation basket. Then they have in the in the first of the columns, you have the weight of those individual sub uh, components. Then lastly, you have the number of items required in the basket to make that sub component reflect the real world. So for example, uh, if you look at um, look at housing there, it's 32.8% 32.8% of the basket, so a huge weight in the basket, but they only have five sub-components to calculate that because effectively there's a rental yield sub-component, there's mortgage cost sub-component, um, and then you really have a pretty good feel for uh, the cost of, of housing. Meanwhile you've got something like food that has a far smaller weighting, um, 8.9%, but you actually need a far larger range. Of, uh, of items in a basket to have a representative feel for what's happening in food uh, price inflation. Now this is an important point. So we'll come on to this in a minute about how you can calculate inflation um, in different ways. But a key point is, it is a basket of around 100 items, um, but it's not all equally weighted. Some things have a bigger weight. So how do you calculate inflation? Well, you need to check what's in the basket, what its weight is, and then how much that price has moved over any given period. And importantly, again, not all items have the same weight. So then what are other measures of inflation? We always talk about um, CPI inflation. We always have that um, that month-on-month, quarter-on-quarter, year-on-year number of consumer price inflation. There are a few other ways of, of looking at it. So The the CPIH is another way of looking at it, adding in housing costs, um, um, but they're still basically representing a simple uh, weighted basket. On the right hand side, though, is the notion of median CPI inflation. For this, you effectively take all of the items in the basket and you line them up based upon the greatest gain to the smallest gain over your time horizon. So let's say we're looking at uh, the second quarter of this year, you would line up everything that we saw on the previous page uh, from that the, the gain the most to that the gain smallest. Then you work up that list and you work through the weights, not necessarily the number of them. But you work through the weights and once you've reached the 50%, uh, 50 percentile of the weight, that item is your median item. And that price change of that item is your median inflation number. Now that all sounds more complicated than perhaps it needed to be, but why do we look at this? Well, it removes some of the extreme items um, in in the data set. So if inflation is being driven by one or two items, uh, either to the upside or to the downside, that might skew the basket and not really give you a feel for what's happening. Over the uh, the entire basket and really in the in the broad economy, it could just be a few idiosyncratic stories driving it. So median inflation is really uh, quite an important one, particularly during times of transition, and arguably is a fairer view of really what's going on in the economy. And that's also because there are plenty of discretionary items in the basket, and if prices surge in one particular area, they may substitute uh, that good or they might stop buying. Um, as much and all of these are waiting to get get redone on a periodic basis. But during times of transition, you can see little surges um, that can affect the headline numbers without necessarily affecting our our day to day life in that same way. So if you're seeing deflation or inflation in just a few items, that's arguably far less important than the whole basket moving, uh, which represents a big change uh, to people's spending power. Lastly, we consider why does it matter today? And that's because we're in this year of transition. We're transitioning from the depths of the pandemic to hopefully the sunnier climes of a global recovery. And the key question in markets today is whether the world will look more like the world pre the financial crisis, and that's a world where growth was high, inflation uh, was more present, interest rates therefore uh, were higher and generally it was a bit more of a classic market environment. Or when Covid is out of the way, do we actually return to the pre-Covid world? And um, by that I mean post-financial crisis um, and particularly the last five years or so. And that world has been typically low growth. It's been uh, very low in terms of interest rates and um, low inflation, because in part because of that low growth. And this answer really matters as it tells you which companies and which sectors will win in the coming years. And this screen here is just a a snapshot from our Asset Allocation Committee showing how we're thinking uh, about about portfolios and markets at the moment. I don't really want to focus on, on where we've got exposure, but I would note at the bottom left and the bottom right, what worlds are you preparing portfolios for? So if you have a more positive uh, growth outlooks. This is the, the bottom left. This will help the cyclical and value areas of the uh, of the economy. So in blunt terms regionally, that would help cyclically uh, exposed areas such as Asia X Japan, uh, the UK, uh, Europe, etc. On the other hand, if you're going for a slightly more subdued growth outlook, more akin to what we were seeing in let's say 2019 or 2018, that will be a world where defensive and growth areas such as technology, the US market more broadly, will outperform. So effectively what's happening in inflation and what's happening in the growth outlook will determine which of these two parts of the barbell uh, outperform. Now, for us, we're taking quite a, a balanced approach, but in terms of market leadership for 2021 and 2022, this is absolutely essential, and that's because we're in a time of transition. Now, when we discuss inflation, there are broadly two camps uh, that have developed. We have the transitory inflation camp and we have the sustained inflation camp. And these terms are thrown around uh, quite a lot, but I thought it would be important to kind of define these before we go into, the, into, into our views over uh, inflation. So transitory inflation here. The story here is that the structural issues that, um, that, that were in place uh, prior to the pandemic are still there, and that will be things like um, you know, a rise of technology, um, uh, keeping inflation under control, outsourcing, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these things driving uh, prices lower, or meaning that inflation never really got out of, of hand. And then it's in the government kind of assessment of what happened during the pandemic, and the view in the transitory inflation camp. And so what happened in the pandemic was all of this stimulus basically avoided a complete car crash of, uh, of an economic uh, downturn rather than necessarily meaning uh, the, the market's now overstimulated and we're going to see you know, excess demand, etc. looking forward. So it's about this idea there was an inflation gap that was bridged uh, rather than necessarily surging it going forward. And then when uh, the transitory inflation camp are looking at what's happening in the market today, they say, well, a lot of this is about cost push inflation. And that's going to dissipate as the world recovers and supply chains uh, start to come back to full strength. On the other side, we've got the sustained inflation camp. And The story here is that the cheap money um, provided by central banks and the huge amount of fiscal support uh, provided during 2020 will basically reignite these animal spirits and, uh, and effectively mean that uh, you know that that built-in inflation uh, that I mentioned right at the start will start getting going, um, and uh, the the extra fiscal firepower from things like the the US um, infrastructure bill that's going through Congress at the moment, things like that will are going to really supercharge. Much, uh, demand, and also people will have stockpiled lots of cash uh, during the the pandemic, and it will all be it will, all be you know put into the economy. And there's an element here that you know the, the, the huge amount of inflation we're seeing this year is really driven by an increase in demand from a low base. But actually, that this demand will become self-fulfilling, and the inflation will become self-fulfilling as well. And there's also a view here that once inflation is out there, central banks will struggle uh, to get it under control. And therefore, uh, we will see inflation stickier for longer and therefore sustained. So in broad terms, if you believe in the transitory inflation camp, you're more in favor of defensive and growth sectors. And if you're in the sustained investment camp, uh, inflation camp, you're looking <clears throat> at cyclical and value equities. So what are the big questions for us to try and answer today? Well, first of all, we need to try and work out today's inflation moves. Are they being driven by demand factors or are they being driven by cost factors? Then there's a question of how will the post-pandemic world look? And lastly, what does that mean for our clients and for investors more broadly? But first, before we tell you what we think we want to get your views. I'll give you a bit of time to, to answer this, but effectively we're asking, based upon what we've heard so far today, do you believe that the current pickup in inflation in the US and to a lesser extent what we're seeing in the UK, uh, yesterday you would have seen uh, the Bank of England now expecting uh, inflation in the UK to peak at 4%, well above the 2% target, is that driven predominantly by factors that were pre proven to be transitory or factors that will prove to be sustained again, this is the big question we 'll come on to what we think over the coming slides, but please do submit and now i will go over and see what we 're all thinking so we 've got seventy five percent of people uh, in the in the transitory camp and twenty five percent in sustained now I think that is actually a a pretty good idea for what investors are thinking across the market and this is why we've got balance in portfolios because the transitory inflation camp I think at the moment is, is probably winning but the sustained inflation camp has plenty of members and, uh, and that means if we do start seeing uh, higher growth numbers uh, the, tra- the sustained camp might well uh, take over in the short term. So let's start trying to answer the first of our big Questions. So, if we believe uh, that the current pickup in demand is, is is or pickup in inflation is demand-led, we really need to look at what's happening to the U.S. consumer. Now, we mentioned the U.S. Um, a lot, and we'll mention it a lot in the in the coming slides. The reason uh, the U.S. is important is it's probably the best example of uh, you know an economy that came in in pretty good health uh, to the pandemic and now has been supercharged by the largest amount of monetary and fiscal support. So if we're going to see inflation anywhere, it's going to be in the United States. The recovery is arguably more developed in the United States than many other countries, particularly uh, you know, the UK and, and continental um, Europe. And then when we look at, uh, at sentiment, it's really important to look at the consumer, and that's roughly about 70% of US GDP or US um, economic demand. So the University of Michigan uh, do a consumer sentiment survey, um, which is what we've got on screen, and we've got it up to the the June data, and it's effectively released in in July. So we'll get another reading of this uh, relatively shortly. And you can see that uh, consumer sentiment, as you imagine, uh, prior to the pandemic was pretty robust and pretty strong, um, and then took, again, as you'd imagine, a huge dip uh, when the pandemic hit. But actually, we've seen a recovery clearly off the lows of the pandemic. But consumer sentiment isn't, you know, painting a picture of absurd confidence and absurd buoyancy. It's more really that actually there's a bit of uh, damage still from the pandemic um, affecting sentiment. And this could be uh, concerns over Delta. It could be um, it could be concerns over employment prospects. Or it could just be uh, concerns about. Politics or, or the future of the economy. But regardless, in aggregate, uh, the US consumer <clears throat> is less likely to want to go out and spend at this moment of time because of all these things hanging over it. So at the moment, it's kind of painting picture where. It doesn't seem there may be pockets of demand being, uh, you know, coming, and certainly there will be a large increase in demand compared to uh, this time last year when there were far more uh, pandemic concerns. We didn't know uh, whether there would be uh, vaccines and whether they would be um, effective, etc. A lot of uncertainty there, but actually we've seen a bit of recovery from that, and, and demand certainly picked up. we we're, we're, we're a long way away uh, from where we were pre the pandemic. So the next question is. What about cost push inflation? Are we actually seeing an increase in in input costs now on here? I've um, screenshotted from uh, Fred, which is uh, the San Luis Fed um, uh, economic portal. If you ever want economic data, um, I highly recommend you use that. You can get US, uh, UK data, etc. I've copied so much of their data in the past I feel I need to give them a little, Little plug during the uh, during the webinar, so what about what about um, input costs? Well, here we can see a huge uh, surge so prior to the pandemic, we saw very little in terms of producer price inflation. so um, the pandemic here you can see um, in the shaded section that 's effectively the recession that we saw in the u s as a result and prior to the pandemic. Has been a little bit of increase. Um, this is just an index, um, so you know it's gone from 190 to 200 over the course of the four years prior to the pandemic. A bit of producer inflation, but really in line with what we've seen previously. But since the pandemic, we've seen prices surge very quickly, surpassed uh, what we saw um, uh, during uh, the pre-pandemic period by basically January of this year, and then we surged well, well past that. And we'd argue a lot of this is down to supply side disruptions, and that's uh, you know restrictions in many countries, um heightened logistics costs. Uh, if you look at the cost of of trying to ship um, a container from from china to britain um it's it's really surged over the last twelve oh, sorry over the last um, you know eighteen months and that's partially there'll be some brexit um related uh, disruption in there, but really it's about the fact that it takes time to bring shipping back to um, the level it was pre the pandemic. During that period, if you need something shipped, you have to pay up uh, for it. So there is a bit of a pickup in demand, um, as we saw from the previous slide, uh, particularly against a low base. But what we're really seeing is a bit of supply side disruption in our view, which in time might catch up, but not yet. And that's why we're seeing quite a big surge in in prices, but it's driven more because inputs are going up quite significantly. Now, this chart is is to consider whether US CPI numbers, which have caught everyone's attention, are really, I wouldn't say necessarily correct, because clearly they are correct, but are they a fair assessment of what is going on? So the chart we've got here um, shows the latest CPI number, which was 5.4%. In June, so it's a pretty blockbuster and headline-grabbing uh, number there. And you can see as well on this chart the the orange line. The orange line is our median um, inflation uh, number. So you can see the median inflation number dip last year a little bit, um, but nowhere near as much as the headline number, which is in green, which really uh, fell to to almost 0% inflation year on year uh, during the height of the pandemic. And then you can see uh, that the orange number, the median number, has also picked up again a little bit this year, but nowhere near the headline figure. And What this is suggesting is that last year's fall in inflation was driven by a small number of components in the basket, and this year's rise is a mirror of that, driven higher by again a small number of components, and this is because there are quite a lot of idiosyncratic stories behind the items that have been surging. So at the top here is the US Bureau of Labor Statistics. They're the ones who calculate uh, the, the CPI numbers for uh, for the United States. And you can see that the index for used cars and trucks contributed over a third of the all items index So, of that 5.4% a year on year increase of that uh, compared to the previous month, a third of that increase was due to used cars and trucks. Now is that because there's huge certain demand for them? Well, yes, but it's an idiosyncratic story. There are two factors here. People bought fewer cars during the pandemic. They either kept their old car because of low consumer confidence, fear about their job, etc. Or if they didn't have a, um, a car and they probably didn't have a need for it uh, because of m- mobility restrictions, etc. etc. So this year, automatically, we will have a bit of pent-up demand coming. You'll have people who have put off uh, their purchases coming back uh, to the market. But there's also a worldwide semiconductor shortage and and semiconductors are clearly a core component for new cars which are which are heavily computer based. And if you look at Ford, GM, uh, some of the the major uh, producers there, lots of them have had to shut down production lines and reduce the number of cars uh, that they can build because of the semiconductor shortage. So people wanting cars can't buy new cars. They need to buy old cars and therefore the price of those has surged. Now is that price increase sustainable? I say not, particularly as signs of um, uh, semiconductor shortages are dissipating. And that means that in, um, in a year's time, or we're already seeing signs of this from uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, a major supplier. Uh, they're saying that they expect by the end of this year um, to have seen a, a big surge in the amount of semiconductors they can produce. And if that number and um, and, um semiconductor shortage isn't sustained, we will start to see used cars become less popular as people move into news cars. So a lot of this is being driven by a very small number of items in the basket. And it's not just semiconductors and we can see this in the commodity markets as well. And the lumber price is one that's really captured uh, the imagination of people and and really what um, the Fed chair Uh, So, Federal Reserve Chair Powell has highlighted quite recently in his um, post-meeting statements. So, back in November last year, we had the release of those key vaccine efficacy trials, and we saw the reflation surge begin. And if you you cast your mind back, we had those uh, every week we would have Pfizer, I think, came out, then Moderna, then AstraZeneca, and it was basically every Monday um, a a new vaccine FCE trial came out. And really, by the end of November, the sentiment was in a far more positive uh, position. There was this concern that we would never be able to uh, vaccinate against coronavirus, and then what would the exit look like? By the end of November, we had a bit more certainty. And as a result, demand started to come back a little bit, and probably more importantly, expectations built that demand would return in the next six uh, to 12 months. And then, in terms of the lumber price, we saw demand being uh, or pick up due to increased home building, which again uh, restarted in earnest. And also, as people got a bit more confident <clears throat> about their job prospects, etc., people embarked on home improvements, etc., all requiring um, lumber. At the same time, sawmills uh, do take some time to come back online. Uh, there were still um, mobility restrictions, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, uh, people you know, off work due to COVID or, or being uh, or self-isolating, etc. and we saw a bit of a squeeze developing in the lumber market. And you can see that uh, quite clearly on, on screen where uh, the lumber price is surging up um, until May of this year. But finally, sawmills uh, met the spare capacity, and prices are now back to their levels prior to the November efficacy trials. Now, I think lumber's a, a quite interesting one to look at because it's a domestically produced commodity in the United States, so it doesn't rely on complicated um, international supply chains uh, to get sorted. Basically, once the U.S. economic and uh, and pandemic picture looks a bit better, the sawmills can come back. Online. So it's one of the fastest commodities, arguably, to return to a bit more of, uh, of, of normality. And commodities with complex global supply and logistics chains will take far, far longer. As anyone who is trying to organise a holiday knows, you need to line up not only the UK rules, but also the rules in the country you're travelling to. If you added in multiple countries on your trip, I mean, it would be incredibly difficult to try and align. So you've got the difficulty on these complicated international uh, supply chains of lining up all the restrictions, um, adding all the extra pandemic costs from each of those individual countries, and that has led to a surge in prices. But we would also argue that over time, there's no reason why there wouldn't be a normalization in lots of these key commodity prices and with that, we would expect a normalization in terms of the input prices for our consumer price inflation over time. So looking a little bit further ahead, what's going to happen in the future around the employment backdrop? Well, in order for consumer sentiment and optimism to rebound, we all need certainty about the job market. Now, later today, we have the U.S. Nonfarm Payroll Employment Report from the United States, and much much attention there will be paid to the headline employment level, expected to come down to about 5.7% unemployment level. But it's not just that headline that matters. And the, the main point from this slide is that lower paid workers have seen their employment rates drop and not recover. Now, this has been uh, highlighted by uh, Fed Chair Powell in particular, as lower paid workers are crucial for consumer demand. This is yet another data set that highlights how different the COVID experience has been for different sections of society. Now, for sustained inflation um, ahead, inflationary pressures need to be reflected in wage prices. Get to that right-hand side um, built-in inflation theme. And we appear to be a long way from filtering Uh, through these employment gains to the lower and to an extent middle-waged workers. So the employment backdrop might look like it's recovered uh, to almost to uh, pre-pandemic levels or not a million miles away from it, but the experience when you look below the data is that the lower-waged workers who are absolutely critical for consumer demand, not only um, because they are a large part of the workforce, but also because their tendency is to spend uh, what they receive rather than to save, unlike higher-paid workers. Um, they are vital to, to restarting consumer demand, and therefore it's one to watch, but it's not happening yet. So, what does the market expect the world to look like? Well, we can see on screen here this is um, again uh, from the Salary Fed. Um, we're looking at 10 year inflation break evens. So now, what does that mean? That means effectively, what does uh, the, the bond market expect to be the average inflation rate? over the next 10 years the so CPI inflation on average over the next uh, 10 years so you can see since the depth of the pandemic we've seen a real surge in uh, in in this measure and um, it's picked up from expecting inflation to basically never return, a, a 0.5% expectation, you know, that, that again would have been during the real height of the, of the sell. So probably not, not an important data point, but, you know, it, it was around 1% uh, for some time. And now the expectation is we'll see around 2.5% as the average inflation rate over the next 10 years. <clears throat> so clearly markets are saying that they're expecting inflation to come back. But of course, sometimes this is all about the timescale you choose. And this is exactly the same chart. Instead of looking at it since the start of 2020, we're looking at inflation expectations uh, since the start of the FRED data in 2003. And actually, inflation expectations at 2.5%, yes, are pretty high uh, compared to what we've seen in the last five years or so. Uh, But actually, it's pretty similar to what the market was expecting in the immediate aftermath of the uh, financial crisis, and indeed prior to the financial crisis, equally there is a bit of uh, a bit of a story to the numbers as well. So we know that inflation in 2021 will be higher, as partially due to base effects, i.e., last year's um, year-on-year comparable price is heavily pandemic. Um, distorted. We know that prices went down um, last year. So automatically, because of the fact there'll be a bit of recovery and, and input prices have gone up, we're going to get some blockbuster numbers uh, this year. So even if inflation returns to normal levels in the coming years, the 2021 figures will skew the 10 year number. So if you take into account that we're seeing 5.4% uh, figures, and that will, that will probably slow over the course of the next six to nine months. but if you've got those starting off your data set, your tenure expectations have to build that in. So again, whilst the, uh, the market is expecting inflation to pick up, some of this just reflects that inflation has picked up naturally over the last few months. So what does this mean for bond markets? Well, over the last few months, the market has certainly brought into the transitory inflation narrative more and more. The side on screen shows the steepness of the bond curve. And what all that means is we've taken the 10-year yield of a US Treasury and subtracted the two-year yield. Now, normally you'd expect um, uh, yield curves to be to kind of go up over time. So you'd expect um, yields to increase over time. That's because you expect the economy to grow again over time. So how steep the yield curve is gives you an idea. First of all, how much growth is expected over the um, o- over the short to medium term, but also uh, what is expected to change in terms of inflation numbers and also if you again cast your mind back to 2018 and two thousand and nineteen there's lots of concerns about yield curve inversion, and that 's effectively when the ten year yield uh, yields less than the two year yield i e Expectations are that over time the, uh, the Federal Reserve in this situation will have to cut rates because we would go through uh, some form of recession. So people look very closely at yield curve inversion. Now clearly we're a long way away from being yield curve inversion. You still get an extra 1% in a US 10 year yield uh, versus a 2 year yield, but the steepness of the curve is highly correlated to economic expectations and inflation expectations. And The flattening of the curve since May shows a market that's expecting a return to a low growth, low inflation outlook. One that looks a lot more similar to what we saw in 2018 and 2019 than we saw, let's say, prior to the financial crisis. So then the question is, who's winning in in equity markets? And here we're looking at the US and the Eurozone equities EC- um, indices as rough proxies for the different sectors in the market. So, um, oh, I think someone's, someone may have lost um, my connection. I'm just going to ask the team chat whether everyone else can hear me, otherwise, I will be talking in um, vacuum.
1: Mid, if you can hear me uh, all working yeah. as it should from my okay, side. Okay, fine, fine. Okay, sorry, I will,
2: I will, I will push on. So um, uh, we, we use the US and Eurozone equities here as rough proxies for the different sectors um, in the market. So the US has a large structural skew towards growth and defensive sectors such as technology and healthcare, whereas Europe has a large skew towards cyclical and value sectors such as energy. And banks, and part of that is is structural. Part of that just reflects um, uh, where we've been um, over time, and which companies like to list in different areas. But it's a very good rough proxy uh, for where market leadership is coming. So if you see um, the the chart on screen here, you can see that the purple line, which is the uh, Eurozone equity market, was actually doing very well um, until the middle of June. It was actually outperforming uh, the more growth and defensive focused um, uh, US equity market. But actually, in the last few weeks and months, the US has quickly moved back to top of the leaderboard. And this is reflecting the fact that the transitory inflation camp has taken over for the time being. But these things can change very quickly, and it would take many strong US growth numbers to change this leadership yet again, but it is not far from impossible, and that's why we're keeping um, balance in portfolios. We think that ultimately the transitory camp will win, but we've retained balance in portfolios given the ongoing uncertainty and the knowledge that we won't really know who wins um, for many quarters to come and we don't want to be caught out in the markets in the interim. Now before we um, move on to the opening up the debate and going through um, some of the of the questions that you've submitted, we wanted to uh, kind of get your views on what these blockbuster numbers will mean for the purchasing power of investors sitting in cash and, you know, clearly, uh, regardless of whether it's transitory or sustained, we are expecting uh, inflation to be high for the next 6, 9, 12 months. What asset class is going to be the big beneficiary of that? So clients sitting in cash wanting to move their money and, and put it to work and do something. You know, Is it going to be in the bond market? Is it going to be in equities? Is it going to be in what I would call conventional alternatives? Um, Convertible bonds, infrastructure, hedge funds, private equity, things that um, have, uh, if you choose the right one admittedly, um, have been able to deliver above inflation, or is it going to be areas such as cryptocurrencies, which are clearly um, uh, getting lots of column inches over the years? So equities here winning 91.4%. Of of the of, of the votes, and I think this is probably again reflecting uh, the view in markets. You know, there is no alternative. The Tina um, argument uh, reflecting the fact that equities are the ones offering the biggest real yield. And I think this is one of those factors which is uh, driving our strategic overweight uh, to equities uh, for the time being. It's the fact that when people really, you know, people will be sitting on the sidelines, see uh, the U.S. markets, um, European markets hitting all-time highs, will feel uncomfortable investing, um, possibly at this time because of that. But really, if there's no alternatives, more people will follow that, and that should boost equity markets over time. So, with that, I will open up the debate and uh, ask Lindsay whether we've had any questions being submitted so far.
1: Ed, thank you very, very much. And uh, we certainly have. Um, So, uh, we've got three or four questions here, and we'll manage that based on time. But I will encourage everyone, now that we have concluded the bulk of the input, if you do have any questions that you'd like to post to Ed, please do use the the Q&A section. We'll pick up those questions there and uh, relay them on to Ed for his comment. But if we we perhaps could kick off, Ed, with uh, the first question, and that is... uh, with with governments globally heavily indebted, well, does it not make sense for them to let basically let inflation rise and allow inflation to uh, work the debt away? Yes, I mean uh, there is there's definitely that
2: that argument which is that actually governments would want inflation slightly higher. Uh, The normal just to reduce the nominal size or reduce the inflation adjusted uh, size of their debt. Of course, if inflation does come back, the thing that would happen is that central banks would have to raise interest rates. What that would also do. Is increase the repayment costs of uh, of, of lots of these bonds. So I, I don't think it's necessarily that easy or necessarily free lunch for governments because their funding costs would would increase markedly. You take the US for example. I mentioned the US fiscal um, infrastructure bill uh, that's going through Congress. If that passes, a lot of that will initially need to be financed uh, through uh, higher debt. And if the debt is being issued at higher interest rates because inflation expectations have jumped, that's not necessarily good uh, for the US Treasury. I think the other point here is that governments might want it. But most central banks uh, globally are now independent, and that means that uh, there. And I'm sure there is more interplay than perhaps um, you know a, a purist would would what would want. Um, but but notionally, at least, uh, there should be should be full independence, and therefore, what governments want won't necessarily pass through to actually what happens um, in interest rates. So, if inflation did come back and inflation was allowed to run slightly hot what we'd probably see is central banks having to act uh, to to either taper asset purchases, so uh, reduce the amount of quantitative easing they're doing, or to raise rates. And both of those would increase the borrowing costs uh, for Treasuries. So I, I do think there's a free lunch out there um, for governments trying to inflate away their debt.
1: Good. Thank you, Ed. That was a comprehensive response. Appreciate it. Uh, a second question we have here is, with wage-price inflation reaching high levels, will the UK government abandon the triple lock on uh, state pensions?
2: Well, I think that's a that's a very topical um, question. Clearly, the uh, this has been a debate that's been taking place uh, between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister for uh, several months. I mean, the, the the triple lock um, is looking at, uh, amongst other things, wage-price uh, increases and. Whilst wage prices aren't necessarily massively higher than they were pre the pandemic, they're probably um, slightly lower. The year on year change has been huge because the comparator is what happened um, at the height of the pandemic when lots of people were losing their jobs. So that number, I think it could be roughly about 8% um, wage price inflation. Now, if all state pensions need to go up by 8%, that is going to um, and need to be financed from somewhere and could be quite expensive Uh, for them to, uh, for them to finance. So I think the expectation there is probably they would look to try and move this temporarily to a double lop where they would take out um, wage price inflation in the very short term. Clearly there is a lot of political um, narrative to this and the Chancellor has phrased it as kind of we need to be fair not only to pensioners but also uh, to taxpayers and and clearly we know um, the the sustainability of uh, the triple lock is is something that uh, is politically very sensitive Uh, so we will see whether they abandon it or not. But I think um, from what Rishi Simak has been saying, he's definitely positioned positioning uh, for the possibility of removing uh, the triple lock. And this is really, you know, again, this is exactly what we're talking about with inflation. It's about base effects and what happened at the height of the pandemic is probably not your best comparator for any data set. But if you are that's being used to you know, ratchet up um, a, you know, a governmental cost, um, you know, I think it's Politically, probably slightly more palatable to um, to tweak it um, in the short term uh, rather than let it fly. I think it, you know, the, the, the distortions of the pandemic might give uh, room for them to do it, so we'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, the, I think the narrative recently has been talked about the double lock, and I think that's probably the way they will ultimately go. Good. Th- thanks
1: uh, Thanks very much, id. There are two more questions that I have on screen to post to you before uh, and then if there aren't any further we'll start to wrap up but uh, the penultimate question I have is that the public's expectations around UK inflation is already increasing so what would stop inflation carrying on as it did back in the uh, 80s and 90s and uh, I'm someone who can actually remember that.
2: Yeah and, and I mean I, I think that you know, What's different um, in the market now compared to uh, the 80s and 90s? And if you go back to the 80s and 90s, we had quite a, a strong um, uh, commodity boom. Uh, I, I think I'm not saying that that can't happen uh, this time around. It, it certainly could happen. But I think, you know, the, once these global supply chains, et cetera, come back, I think there'll be uh, you know, a, a push down in terms of the price pressures, and also, if you look at some of the recoveries we 've seen in the past they 've been boosted by uh, huge surges in chinese demand. you know a post five crisis is, is your classic example of that. We had a huge amount of, of fiscal spending from from China, drove commodity demand, and actually um, actually helped pick up uh, inflation and We saw uh, patches of that during the '80s and 90 s as well. I think the other Key factor is the independence of of central banks and when it was more political whether to raise interest rates or cut interest rates um i think it'd be fair to say governments globally did a pretty shoddy job of it and that's because you know going back to the, the first question we had about about inflation and whether governments would let that you kind know, of get, get carried away etc um, you know, they might be tempted to do that and that might, there might be a political imperative to actually you know, run the economy hot to, to reduce uh, debt burdens and then all of a sudden you get to a point where inflation you're fearing is getting out of control and you need to hike rates really aggressively um, uh, to, to defend your currency and you get into the whole, the whole matter of bother. And central banks are very, very worried about this and you know, take what the US um, is doing at the moment. Uh, You know, they are, even though the economy hasn't fully recovered in in the United States, they are talking about tapering their asset purchases by the end of this year, potentially raising rates in the start of 2023. So they're really going down the line of trying to make sure uh, that uh, the inflation doesn't get out of control. If the government was, was running it, they might be tempted to actually say, no, 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 we won't do anything. We'll provide more and more stimulus provide more and more support to be 100% sure the recovery's in there because, you know, there are elections in two years, whatever, and we want to make sure uh, we get re-elected. The central banks, I think, should keep control structurally, um, uh, uh, inflation um, over, the, over the medium to long term in, in all developed markets where they've got independence. So I, I think a return to the 80s, 90s um, it, it would be a return really to uh, central banks no longer having independence. And I think that's very unlikely. Um, and uh, inflation should be under control. And, and certainly these banks have plenty of controls. Um, you know, they can. They, they've got huge balance sheets now um, uh, due to the amount of quantitative easing they've done over the last 12 or so years um, and uh, they can either deploy that onto the market to uh, raise borrowing costs or they can raise rates. So They've got plenty of tools available uh, to keep inflation under control should it prove to be sustained. At the moment, uh, markets clearly viewing um, it will be transitory and that's Certainly coming out of uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of England etc expectations over the next couple of years, maybe three years uh, will return to a bit of normality, Uh, but if we don't do that and and inflation does show signs of of being sustained and and getting carried away, I I would see rates going up pretty rapidly uh, to make sure um, that 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 circumstance doesn't actually uh, get achieved.
1: Good. Thank you, Ed. Uh, there are a couple, uh, a couple more questions I think we've got time for before we wrap up at 11.30. There's a very specific question from one of our, our guests today who is referring back to the early slides you covered on uh, CPI. And he's saying, are mortgage repayments still included in the basket under housing costs? Now, due to,
2: the, due to the joys of this platform, I, have, um, I actually saw this question come in, so I've actually managed to Google it and get the basket up. So um, <laughs> it, it, I think the, the key... <laughs> otherwise, otherwise it would be a very ill-informed um, <laughs> answer. But um, it, it, so the, the key point on that basket was we were looking at CPI H, so CPI with housing costs on top. So, again, as, uh, as this kind of question alludes to, um, you've got RPI, which is included housing, and CPI, which hasn't. CPI is generally what people use um, globally, but CPIH is closer to to uh, to RPI. Um, CPIH does include. Um, so I'm just looking at the the sub components of that. It includes rent, it includes uh, council tax, um, utilities. Uh, DIY materials. I mean, it, it, some of the things that <clears throat> are included in this basket are, are, are quite bizarre, really, um, but uh, it also does include uh, mortgage interest payments. So importantly, this is CPIH, uh, which is this broader measure of inflation, does include
1: um, a mortgage costs, but you're actually right, CPI itself would not. Thank you, Ed. And uh, I was a bit nervous asking that question because it was a very specific point. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, to, I'm to come
2: to Google just in time.
1: <laughs> Excellent. And the final question before we start wrapping up is, uh, uh, we have a question again from the audience asking for your thoughts on gold as a traditional safe haven uh, asset in today's world. So
2: uh, uh, gold r- remains one of these well, I wouldn't say impossible assets to predict, but it's certainly more difficult one. It's been the classic chameleon asset class in the way that, depending on uh, the market situation people either say it's driven by interest rates, say it's driven by inflation, uh, driven by sometimes by demand, sometimes by uh, supply side shortages etc and and there seems to be a different narrative. There's no one narrative I think that captures what's happening in the gold price and that makes predictions around gold price uh, pretty difficult uh, to do. Um, We've uh, not been very constructive on gold uh, for some time and um, this doesn't answer questions more than anecdote, uh, but we met with um, MRB, who are one of the uh, research providers we, we use, and we said, "Well, you know, we disagree with you on, on gold. They were quite positive. Why is this?" And whilst we have disagreed, we all agreed that the main thing driving gold at the moment is around interest rate expectations, and effectively, when more and more of the world's um, uh, bond market is providing a negative nominal yield and and uh, even more negative real yield actually it's quite attractive to put your money into gold because uh you know it's going to be viewed as a store of value if however interest rates and um, were five percent which we're not going to you know get there get get there probably ever um but certainly not in 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 the short term but let's say it was Uh, the the opportunity cost of holding gold, which is yielding nothing, is far greater. So there's part of it which is about opportunity um, cost. So I think given the fact that our expectations are that interest rates will gradually rise over uh, the next few years and certainly um, you know, interest rate expectations will start building in um, a, a, you know, a more positive slant as uh, the, the recovery uh, gets underway and continues. I think because of all of that, we would expect the opportunity cost of holding gold to increase, which would weigh on the price. But as I always say, when we're discussing gold, um, that's what I have been saying uh, <laughs> we've probably got it right in, in 2021. But we certainly didn't get it right in, in 2020. It's a very hard um, asset to call, that
1: Good, Ed. Thank you very, very much for both that very informative presentation and your your responses to, to all of those questions. Uh, greatly appreciated. So looking at the time, it's virtually eleven thirty, which uh, was our intended closure time. So we won't continue with any further questions. Can I remind everyone on board here to complete the survey, which will pop up once the webin- once this webinar completes, and uh, of course. Don't forget, you've earned it. You've been sat rapidly listening to Ed for the last 30, 40 minutes or so. But don't forget to download your CPD certificate as well. So thank you very, very much for joining Brooks Donald today. We hope you both enjoyed it and, of course, got value out of Ed's words of wisdom on markets and inflation. So thanks again, Ed. Thanks to all our listeners and viewers today. And we look forward to you joining
0: us on another of our Connected series. Goodbye. Please listen carefully to this important information. This podcast is intended for investment professionals only and should not be shared with a non professional audience. This podcast should not be taken as an invitation to deal in Brooks McDonald products or services. Any views expressed during this recording belong to the individual and are based on market conditions at the time of recording and do not reflect the views of Brooks McDonald. Brooks McDonald is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. For full terms and conditions, please visit our website.